invite you to take your Bible and be finding your place in Matthew's Gospel, chapter number one, uh, the first chapter of Matthew. I began a a short series of sermons last week uh, through every Sunday in December uh, where I'm taking four or five of the most well-known Christmas carols and using them sort of as an illustration to tell the Christmas story as it's presented in the Gospels of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew. Now, I have to confess, my favorite Christmas carol is, it's the one that the instrumentalists were playing when we, we began, it's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, you may not realize this, but that's the uh, oldest Christmas carol that there is. It goes back some 1,200 years to uh, the ninth century medieval church where it originated as a Latin chant that was often used for worship. Um, The writer is unknown, but obviously he is someone who was well-versed in the truth of God's word, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, way back in the dark ages, uh, during those times, very few people had access to the Bible. And so this chant, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, was one of the very few examples of the full story Uh, explaining how the Messiah came to earth to rescue humanity from the clutches of sin and darkness. That was in 1818. There was an Anglican priest by the name of John Mason Neal who came across this Latin chant, translated it into English, and it wasn't very long before it became popular throughout much of Europe as well as America. Now, the first couple of stanzas of the song says this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. The second stanza says, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory over the grave. Now there are about eight stanzas or so in the chant, and basically uh, the idea is, here is what God's going to do to rescue humanity from sin, from death, and from darkness, and it will be through the work of Emmanuel. Now that word Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel, it means God with us. And it's taken from the seventh chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, 14, where a promise was given. uh, This promise was given to King Ahaz. As far as the context of the the promise, uh, Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom. He was the Davidic king. The times were dark. The times were perilous. Assyria was the growing threat in the day, threatening smaller nations, Uh, such as Syria, Ephraim, the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, Syria and Ephraim decided to uh, come together and tried to pressure Ahaz and the southern kingdom of Judah into forming an alliance against the Assyrians. Well, that was something that Ahaz was not willing to do. And the reason, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 16, was that he had secretly already made a treaty with the king of Assyria. And so the Syrians, um, 
the northern kingdom, they team up against the southern kingdom and they threaten to wipe out Ahaz and Judah and put their own king on the throne, the Davidic throne. So the threat that Ahaz and the people of Judah were up against was the threat of being wiped out. Uh, Would this be the end of the Davidic dynasty? And so through the prophet Isaiah, God has a message that he wants delivered to King Ahaz. Uh, And that message is this, the Lord will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, you don't have to turn there, but, but in Isaiah chapter eight, Isaiah goes on and talks about just the darkness that the people of Judah were up against during those days. It seemed like the darkness was prevailing at the time. That is until you get to the ninth chapter. And in chapter nine, the prophet says, the people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. Now what is the light? What's the source of the light? Verse six, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So the promise to Ahaz and the people of Judah was that a sign would be given that involved a virgin conceiving, giving birth to a son whose name would be Emmanuel. He is God with us. And when it seems like the darkness is winning out over the day, over the light, the light is going to shine into the dark and it will be through the arrival of this son. Now, Matthew chapter one, Matthew is going to show us how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Isn't that good news, especially in our day where there seems to be so much death and darkness and sickness? And at times it may seem like the darkness is encroaching and it's getting darker by the day. I like what Tim Keller says in his book, Hidden Hidden Christmas. He says, the message of Christmas is not cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. He says, the Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. And yet it supports no illusions that we can support the force, uh, defeat the forces of darkness on our own. Christianity doesn't agree with the optimistic thinkers who say we can fix things if we try hard enough. Neither does it agree with the pessimist who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christianity instead is this. Yes, things are bad. Yes, the time is dark. We can't save ourselves. Nevertheless, there is hope. And folks, listen, the Christmas message is this. On those who were dwelling in the region of shadow and death, the light has dawned. The light has come. Uh, The the text does not say... um, from the world a light has sprung. 
But it says this, upon the world a light has dawned. In other words, it's come from somewhere else. Uh, Who is that light? That light is Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew's going to show us how that's the case here in this first chapter of the New Testament. So you're there in Matthew chapter 1. I want you to begin reading with me there in verse number 1. Now, I'm not going to read the whole genealogy in the chapter, but the first verse says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then for the next several verses, there are all of those hard-to-pronounce names, and I'm sure when you got up and had your devotions this morning, you took your devotional text right here from the genealogy. Most of us tend to shy away from that. We tend to uh, read as fast as we can when we come to these passages because of all of those hard-to-pronounce names. But you need to know that Matthew is doing something here. He's showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy and how he is Israel's rightful and true king. He is Messiah. He is Emmanuel. So you get to verse 17. uh, All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he goes back through the ancestral record and he sort of divides up the ancestral lineage of the Messiah in a triad, uh, each that contained 14 generations. Or, to say it this way, six sevens. And the birth of Christ is the beginning of the seventh seven. The seven is a biblical number for fulfillment and perfection. So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience who would be picking this up. They understand exactly what he's doing here as he's beginning his gospel. Verse 18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now look at verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In verse 23, Matthew reaches right back into the Old Testament to to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and he quotes it there. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Matthew is saying Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of messianic hope. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy. He is God with us. And this virgin conception that he's telling us about in this first chapter was the sign that the Lord had said to look for. So when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
So I want to speak from this subject this morning using the title of that familiar Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now, this first chapter in Matthew's gospel presents the birth narrative of Christ from the perspective of Joseph. If Luke chapter 1 and 2, Luke chapter 2 presents the narrative from Mary's point of view, then here in Matthew's gospel, it is being presented from Joseph's point of view. Now, we're told in the text that Mary and Joseph were in the betrothal phase. They had not yet come together as man and wife. And uh, much to Joseph's surprise, he discovers that she is with child. And so he's immediately faced with this dilemma, what is he going to do? Mosaic law demanded that adultery be punishable by death. And yet Joseph wants to spare her from that shame and from that penalty. And the text describes him as being a just man. Uh, So he decides to have her divorced privately. But the angel of God comes to him by night and in a dream, he clues him in on what's really going on. So this happens uh, sometime later after that initial announcement to Mary uh, that was given to her by Gabriel recorded in Luke chapter 1. So all of this is from Joseph's perspective. But Matthew, writing from that Jewish perspective with the Jewish audience in mind, uh, he's telling us some things about the Messiah here in this first chapter of his gospel. Now he emphasizes several important truths about the Lord Jesus. To begin with, he emphasizes his ancestral lineage. And that's why he begins with the genealogy here in the first several verses of the chapter. So the other gospel writers, they begin their gospels a little bit differently. Mark is the action gospel. Mark begins his gospel by jumping right into uh, the, the, the sequence of events as Jesus begins his ministry. Luke begins his gospel with a little bit of introduction, but he immediately jumps into historical narrative about Zechariah and Elizabeth, setting up the story. John begins his gospel with that powerful uh, theological statement about who Jesus is. He's the Word made flesh who's come to dwell among us. But Matthew, however, because he's writing to a Jewish audience, uh, writing with the Jewish audience in mind, He begins his gospel with a genealogy. It's an ancestral record showing us how Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the king of Israel. And so this genealogy traces his ancestry back to Abraham through King David. And so I probably imagine that most of us, if 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 you're like me, you probably can't go very, very far back Uh, unless you've done that Ancestry.com thing where you've researched your roots, I think we can go back, in my family, at least three greats. I can go back to my great, great, great grandfather. I know where his grave is in North Georgia. But most of us, that's about as far back as we can go. Now, if you are a member of the royal family of England, well, they know their ancestral record and can go back 35 generations. You say, well, why is that? Well, it's because if you're royalty, it's important that you keep up with this kind of thing. A royal line of descent is something that's well-documented. And it's because in a, in a, in a monarchy, uh, power is not conferred upon an individual through popular vote, but it's inherited by birth. And so Matthew begins with the royal family tree. 
and he's showing us how Jesus is uniquely qualified to be the king of Israel. So a couple of things to understand about this. Uh, all of it was legal to begin with. This is a legal ancestry. To a Jewish audience, if someone were to claim that he was the Messiah, but he didn't have the legal pedigree, the royal pedigree or ancestry, then it would all be over for him. So what you have here with the genealogy, this is sort of the equivalent of a drum roll. This is almost as if the trumpets are beginning to blare. The town crier is calling for attention. Matthew is telling his Jewish audience, here is the legal pedigree of Messiah. Who is he? Who will Emmanuel be? Well, he's going to be the seed of Abraham. That's obvious in the first five verses of Matthew's gospel. Uh, in descending order, Matthew traces the legal lineage of Jesus from Abraham through King David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised to make him into a great nation. God said, I will bless you. I, I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And essentially, God tells Abram that he's going to bring blessing to the whole world through Abram or Abraham's seed or his offspring. Says uh, just a few verses later, he says, I'm going to give your offspring the land. Genesis chapter 22, God says to Abraham, in your seed or offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Matthew is showing us how Jesus is indeed the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham has come to all nations through Messiah, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham. But then the genealogy goes on. Uh, Messiah is also the son of David. And you see this emphasized there in the record, verses 6 through 15. You remember it was in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God had promised to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. Now, obviously, Solomon follows David. He's David's son, but Solomon reigns over the kingdom for 40 years, but Solomon dies. After Solomon, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, he becomes king as he inherits the Davidic throne, but he's a fool and he splits the kingdom because of his folly. And so you think, well, what's really going on here with the promise that God has made to David? Listen, it's going beyond Solomon, going beyond Rehoboam, going beyond the Davidic kings that follow. That's a promise that Messiah is going to sit upon the throne of David. And he's going to rule over a kingdom as Israel's rightful king. And that rule will be forever and ever. And Matthew is showing us how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Again, it's why, it's why the promise is given in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and kingdom, there will be no end. He will sit upon the throne of David and over his kingdom forever. So this, this is a legal genealogy. It's an, a legal ancestral record. Let me tell you something else about it. It's also very inclusive. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, this first chapter is both a genealogy and a resume. Now, it, in those days, a person's genealogy was sort of a way 
of announcing to the world, this is who I am. Uh, which, by the way, in those days, people sort of tinkered with their resumes the same way that people tinker with their resumes today. Everybody wants to look good when it comes to their resume, right? But you know, Matthew doesn't do that with this genealogical resume of Jesus. It's not tinkered with. It's not, it's not spruced up. The resume is not padded because Matthew does something that would have been very peculiar to his Jewish audience. He mentions the names of women in the ancestral record, but he does this for a, a very real reason. In just the first six verses alone, uh, he mentions the names of four women. Ruth, her name is, she was, she was a Moabitess, she wasn't even Jewish. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you've got Tamar who's mentioned. And you can read in the book of Genesis the sordid affair that Tamar has with her own father-in-law. We'd almost blush when we talk about it. It was just such a, such a, uh, a, a, a messy situation. Uh, you've got Rahab. Uh, she was a harlot. She's mentioned in the genealogical record. And then in verse 6, you've got Jesse, who's the father of David. David's the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba. Now, her name's not being used here, but it's no slam against her. But this is just an honest account of David's own sin. David was the king of Israel, and yet this, he was not a perfect king. He was a man who had committed adultery with another man's wife and then had that man murdered. And so Matthew is not padding the resume. No one is perfect in the family tree of Jesus. That is until you get to Jesus himself, until you get to Messiah himself. And let me tell you, all of us should find hope when you look at the genealogical ancestral record of Jesus Christ because it's a description of just who he came to save. He came to save the likes of these. He came to save sinners. He's the good physician, the great physician who comes to heal the sick, to save the lost, to bring back and bind up the broken, to give life to the dying, to resurrect the dead. And he's able to do that because he is Emmanuel. This is God with us. And that's what Matthew is saying here in the genealogy. So you've got the ancestral lineage of the Messiah. That's the first thing that Matthew mentions. Now, notice the second thing here. Uh, the miraculous arrival of Messiah. He's told us a little bit about who he's going to be, who Emmanuel is. Well, how is he going to come? How is it that he's going to show up? Well, Matthew begins telling the story in verse number 18. Now, you know the Bible records some miraculous births, conceptions that happen to couples who were well past the childbearing age, barren couples, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John. But no birth, no conception was like the conception of God's own son in the womb of Mary. Because we're told in the text that Mary is a virgin when conception happens within her womb. And that's the sign that God gave to Ahaz in Isaiah chapter seven. The virgin is going to conceive will bear a son, bring forth a son, but this is no ordinary son. This is no ordinary human being. This is Emmanuel, this is God with us. And so his arrival then, it's going to be supernatural. 
His arrival onto the scene is supernatural. If you go back through the genealogy, uh, the genealogy of Jesus connected names like Abraham and Isaac or Jesse and David. And Matthew uses the Greek verb ganao, which indicates that the first person literally brought about the second, right? Uh, He was his ancestor. The older translations, you sort of see it expressed this way, so-and-so begot so-and-so. That's how it's translated. Ganao, that's the verb that's being used. Well, the text that describes the birth of Jesus, it does so in a way that disconnects his physical descent from Joseph and instead links it to Mary. If you go back to verse 16 and you see where it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Ganao, of whom Jesus was brought forth. Ganao, but the phrase, that tiny little phrase there in Greek, translated from whom, uses the singular feminine pronoun. And listen, what's all that mean? I'll tell you what it means. It means Mary is the sole source of his physical existence. Means that he does not have an earthly father. That's what it means. It means that something supernaturally has happened within the womb of his mother Mary. What was it that happened? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 18, Before she and Joseph came together in the physical sense, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. By the power of God, supernaturally, conception has happened in her womb. So it's supernatural. Now let me tell you something else that this is. It's scandalous. This is scandalous. Again, all of this is from the perspective of Joseph They were in that second phase of the Jewish wedding rites, which were in three phases, engagement, betrothal, and then the actual ceremony itself. Joseph and Mary were in that second phase, betrothal. It was just as legally binding as the marriage itself, only the two had not come together. So if anything happened in that second phase, it would be viewed as a breach of contract. If there was unfaithfulness on the part of one spouse, that was punishable by death according to the law of Moses. And so here you have Mary and Joseph, they're in the betrothal phase, they've not come together in the physical sense, and yet Mary is with child. And let me tell you, Joseph may be the unsung hero in many ways of the Christmas story. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment. What is it that he's going, he's faced with a dilemma, isn't he? I mean, you know, uh, Mary's with child. She's making the claim that the, the child is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph doesn't know what's going on. He only knows that his, his fiance is with child. The child is not his. So in his heart, because he's a just man, wanting to do the right thing and spare her from shame and embarrassment, He determines that he's going to put her away privately, secretly. He's going to divorce her. So he's in a conflict. He's wanting to do the right thing. But as he's he's thinking on the situation, verse 20 says that the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and gives him some reassurance. And the angel says, Joseph, you son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now think about it. Up until this point, Joseph is trying to come up with a strategy. He wants to do the right thing. He's faced with a dilemma. He's got a hard decision that he's got to make, but he doesn't know what to do. It's into that situation God speaks into his life. God gives him a word right when he needed it. What he couldn't figure out by his own calculating and strategizing, God made clear through giving him a word from heaven. Hey, are you faced with a decision? Have you been faced with a decision lately? You don't know what to do, but you want to do the right thing? Let me tell you something. Pray, commit it to the Lord in faith, get a word from God from his own word, and trust that he's going to give you the wisdom that you need. That's what God's doing with Joseph here. And, and, and the message is this, don't be full of fear. Don't be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. Yeah, the situation is going to bring about the scorn from other people. Society may frown when they hear the story and be full of unbelief, but don't be afraid of what might happen. He's to be obedient. And yet that does not mean that obedience would be easy, which by the way, obedience seldom is easy. Obedience often is very hard. Obedience often doesn't make sense from our perspective, but it always, it always, it's not just the best way, it's the only way. So Joseph is going to need some courage. Courage to face scorn from society. He's going to need courage to give up his own rights to self-determination. You say, what do you mean? Well, the angel tells him what, what the child is to be named. Name him Jesus. Now, that's a big deal in a patriarchal society because in those days, it was the father's prerogative to name his children. And in that way, it was the father who was demonstrating his authority over the members of his household. And so, yeah, here Joseph is having to give up his right to self-determination, and he's being told what to name this child. The child isn't his, but he's going to raise the child as if the child were his. Let me tell you something. Here's the message of this, though. When Jesus is in your life, you're not in control of him. He's the one who's in control of you. So here you have Joseph and you have Mary. Both of them are being obedient to the call that God places upon their life. It's not easy. And even before Jesus is born, here you have both his mother and his earthly father, Joseph, adopted father, Joseph, bearing the shame and reproach associated with his name. Now listen, isn't that just good news? <laughs> don't, you just, don't you see discipleship being modeled through the way that they're living their life and following the lordship of God in their lives? Name him Jesus. It means the Lord is salvation. Jehovah saves. And so Christmas then is all about the salvation of God's Son. It's the message that man is hopelessly lost. Man is stumbling around in the darkness. He desperately needs light from another world to shine into his darkened world. He can't turn the light switch on by himself. He needs God to do for him what he cannot do for himself. He needs Emmanuel. And yet everything that Joseph is told is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. 
One last thing, and I want to finish with this, but, but notice that Matthew emphasizes the divine identity of the Messiah. Who will he be? Well, that's answered in the genealogical record. How is it that he's going to arrive? Well, we're told there in verses 18 through 21. But what will he do and why is he able to do it? He's coming to save his people from their sins. That's what he's coming to do. How is he able to do it? I'll tell you how. He, listen, he is unlike anyone else who has ever been born. This is not just some ordinary human being. Neither is this some superhuman figure that's going to drop out of the sky who's unlike us. No, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is fully God, fully man, who's come into our situation to get right what Adam got wrong so that he can rescue Adam's race from sin, death, and darkness. That's what Emmanuel means. So that's his divine identity. And listen, I'm telling you, this is the best news that you will ever hear if you've never heard this before. This, this life that has been conceived in the, in the womb of Mary that's growing, this is also divinity. Yes, humanity, but perfect humanity. Deity, divinity. This is the incarnation. This is what John is talking about in John 1.14 when he says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. God becoming a man. Word made flesh. God becoming human. Invisible becoming visible. Untouchable becoming touchable. The transcendent one who has descended and come near when we could never Ascend the mountain to be where he is. He came down into the depths of where we are that he might lift us up. In fact, that's what C.S. Lewis said. He said in the Christian story, it's God who comes down. Down from the heights of absolute being into time and space. Down into humanity. Down to the very roots and the seabed of the nature he's created. But he goes down to come up again that he might bring the whole ruined world up with him. And C.S. Lewis uses the illustration of a diver who divests himself of, of any weight, but he plunges into the depths of the black, murky water, down through increasing pressure and ooze and slime until he goes all the way to the bottom. And then he comes back up again back to color and light, his lungs bursting until he breaks the surface while holding in his hand that precious thing he went down to recover in the first place. What was it that God desired to recover? Paul says it this way, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. What is it that he came to recover? Me. Me. You. He came to rescue us. Does it not just blow your mind that the God of heaven would so humble himself that he would be born into our dark and sin-cursed world to take on our mess, the mess that we've caused you think of the mess in our world today. You think God is to, bl to blame for the mess in our world? No. 
all of the, all of the, the, the hurt and all of the pain and all of the brokenness and all of the depravity that you see on display. God isn't to be blamed for that. It's man and his sin. But let me tell you, God has done something about it in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our Emmanuel. Therefore, I love the last stanza of that song. Oh, come, oh, day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Drive away the shades of night, pierce the clouds, and bring us light. Oh, come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. Folks, he's done it in the person of Jesus Christ, but you've got to believe it in faith. You've got to receive Christ in faith as your own personal Lord and Savior, God with us. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Oh, aren't you grateful for the message of Christmas? Aren't you grateful for the miracle of the incarnation? Aren't you grateful for the mind-blowing majesty that's associated with Christmas and all that God has done to rescue us? You say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not sure that I need rescue. I'm a pretty good person. I've never killed anybody. You know, I've never, I've never done this. I've never done that. I've never been here. I've never been there. Listen, you don't understand who you really are, my friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and your sin. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. And you get to heaven not on the basis of your own good deeds and your own meritorious work, but by the merits of another. It's only through the work of Emmanuel, God with us, the God-man, who did indeed live a life of per true perfection and yet was nailed to the cross for my sin and for your sin. God raised him from the dead. He's seated upon the throne. And the time is coming when he's going to return and establish the kingdom upon the earth in a literal sense. And he's going to rule and reign from the throne of David over a kingdom that will never end. And we will rule and reign with him. But you've got to know him in personal faith. Every head bowed and every eye closed this morning. Those of you who are watching online, listen, I want to extend an invitation to you. By faith, receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Confess your sin and your need for Him. Believe that He died for you and rose again and confess Him as your Lord. That opportunity is yours today. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that our Savior is indeed Emmanuel, God with us who's come to rescue us, who's with us. And Lord, the truth of Emmanuel, wow, what a truth that is. No matter what difficult circumstance we're faced with in this life, we're encouraged by the fact. We find our strength in the truth that you are God with us. And even better than that, because of the finished work of Christ, through the person of your Holy Spirit, you are now God in us. And we've been united with Christ. And what's his is ours. And it's all through faith. So Lord, whatever decisions need to be made today, may people have liberty to make those decisions in Christ's name. Amen.